Okay, good morning, everyone. I'll try it again. Good morning, everyone. All right, great to see you. So it's such a beautiful day outside, and we're kind of getting into the season of summer. So when you're greeted, you should be happier, okay? A warmer greeting, if you get that. All right, a couple things that are uh, going on over the next few weeks here at the chapel. Uh, These are opportunities for you to get engaged in what is uh, occurring here at the church. So for newcomers, and I have to admit, I, I don't remember the date of the newcomers' luncheon. So does anybody remember it? 23rd? Okay, so if you're new here, and when we say new, we probably mean from like pre-COVID till now, we're going to have a meeting with the elders and the pastoral team members, and we want to invite you to come to that. It'll be a lunch in right after the service. It'll be back in one of the rooms to the left, and uh, we want to invite you to come just to get to know uh, some of the folks that are involved in leadership here, and also share with you opportunities to get involved in our church family. Young adults are meeting at our home tonight, so it's 11. Lauren Drive, Stewartsville. Uh, that's tonight at 6 o'clock. So we're doing uh, hamburgers. We're doing some volleyball. I'm going to be a spectator. Okay? <laughs> For obvious reasons, okay? But uh, I think we have 15 to 20 people coming tonight, which is just really exciting to see this uh, new group of young people that is starting to rise up in our church family. So excited about that. So that's tonight at 6 o'clock. Feel free to come anywhere after 5.30. We plan to open our nursery ministry at the beginning of June. So there's a young lady in the back named Kristen Kiera. Her husband is our worship leader. Uh, If you are willing to assist in that, uh, we all benefit from it. I checked the Bible this morning. Working in nursery is not a spiritual gift, so (laughs) you say, well, that's just not my gift. Well, there is no gift for that, okay? It's called service and sacrifice for the benefit of the broader community. So I want to encourage you, if you're able to help with that, go back and see Kristen so that we can get a nice rotation of six to eight weeks so that it's not a burden to anybody. Um, Okay, that's everything I have. Uh, Just want to encourage you to join this morning as we uh, stand together in opening our hearts to God and singing praise to God. We're going to sing some powerful songs that will help you to refocus on who God is in the midst of the circumstances of your life today. Why don't you stand with me? Father, as we come before you, we, we want today to behold you. Uh, Lord, we want to see you in all your glory so that our struggles and our troubles, our difficulties, our circumstances that overwhelm will be mitigated by the truth of your awesome presence in our lives. Your word tells us, blessed is the one whose mind is stayed on thee because they trust in thee. So Lord, as we sing, the aim is not simply to do ritual, not to do liturgy. It is to fix our eyes on you and to find our hearts changed. And Holy Spirit, your ministry through song is to make truth clear to us as we sing to one another. So I pray that clarity would come as we sing truth that becomes clear because it is being sung together. We look forward to that ministry in our midst. We pray over those, Father, within our church family that have been wrestling with extended illnesses, uh, particularly I think of Diana Kelly. God, my simple request is that your healing would rest on her life and you would bring her freedom uh, from this battle with cancer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Uh, for others here with un 
spoken, situations that are not in words right now, but are being experienced by them. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working and moving in their lives to restore what is broken, to heal what is uh, diseased and sick. Lord, meet with us today. How desperately we need to hear from you in this generation. So meet us here today as we worship you. We pray these things and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship him together. Come people of the risen king. Oh, 
has given counsel.
us, Lord. We know that's true this morning, that you will reign forever. Thank you, God, that we can sing together this morning. We praise our risen King, who is not still dead in a grave or an idol on a shelf. But you are alive forevermore. And thank you, Lord, for calling us out of the grave. You called my name, and I came running out of that grave. The truth is too good. God, thank you for saving our, our souls. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. God, we thank you this morning that we can behold you. You are our king, seated on the throne forevermore. We ask now, as Pastor James speaks to us from your word, we would hear and listen and then go do. We thank you for this time of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Children, you, good morning. Children, you could be dismissed for junior church. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. So we have been uh, working our way through this gospel of Mark. And what we have been seeing is his march uh, to this very cross. He began in the very beginning saying that he was coming here to prepare the way so that we could be saved. I, I want you to see that in the last several weeks, we've also been seeing that Jesus has suffered at the hands of his friends. Going back the last three or four weeks, we have been seeing that his friends have been saying to him that they were going to follow him to the very end, and they didn't. They made these proclamations of what they were going to do, and they failed. One of his friends was going to actually betray him for silver. Another of his friends was going to profess that he was going to stand firm with him, and he denied him. And many of his friends, all of his friends, in fact, abandoned him in some way or another, except for John, who's standing before him at the cross. So I want you to think about this, that, that Jesus suffered at the hands of his friends. The second I want you to see is that Jesus has been suffering at the hands of his foes. Uh, as he's been working right from the beginning, his friends have been there, but the foes have been there right from the very beginning. They have been saying to him that he is breaking laws. He is rebelling against their authority. He is doing falsehoods. They even thought he was in league with Satan. So I want you to see that he has been abandoned by his friends. He has been abused and attacked and abused by his foes. But amazingly in this passage that we're going to see today, he is going to even suffer at the hands of his father. The anger, the wrath that, that the father has for your sins and mine, if you trust in Christ, was poured out upon Christ on Calvary. And he's been attacked by these friends. He has been abandoned by the friends, attacked by his foes. But he is going to have to suffer the anger and the wrath of God, his father, if you were to be saved. You know, when I take a passage of scripture, what I do is I, I follow a four-step approach. Now, you probably have heard of observation, interpretation, and application. If you've done Bible study before, observation is you see what the passage says. Interpretation is you see what the passage means. And then finally, application is how you apply it in your life. I, I use a four-step approach. It doesn't matter. My four steps is that I ponder a passage. I, I roll it around my head. I don't just want to read it. And I'm really asking you this morning, because this is a passage of Scripture that you've heard so many times in your life, 
Yeah, Jesus was crucified. Yes, he died. Yes, he said some verse, some words from the cross. But I want you to ponder it. I want you to deeply meditate on the fact that the second person of the Trinity went to a cross for you and you and you if you trust in him. Ponder it. So the second thing I do is I personalize it. Now, not all passages of scripture are for us specifically. They were written to a group of people in a group of time. But primarily the Holy Spirit is writing to those people and he's speaking to you. I want you to personalize it. I want you to put yourself there. I want you to put yourself there in the, in the feet of Pilate. I want you to put yourself there in the religious leaders. I want you to put yourself there in Barnabas. Barabbas, I should say. I want you to put yourself there in the centurion that we'll talk about. I want you to put yourself there at the cross. So I ponder it, I personalize it, then I, then I pray about it, and I praise God for it. I look for things in that passage that I could pray to God for, and then I praise him for what I see in that passage. Ponder, personalize, prayer and praise, and then finally practice. I want to figure out something that I can learn from this that I can take home with me. Okay, so we're going to use that same model Um, I'm not going to use a strong outline today, but if you wanted to break it down, verses 1 through 5 seem to be Pilate, uh, Jesus standing before Pilate. In verses 16 through 15, we see that Jesus is sentenced to die. In verses 16-ish and 20 to 20, he is mocked by the soldiers. Jesus was crucified in verses 21 to 32. And then he dies on the cross, verses 33 to 39. So if you can hear that, there's 39 verses here. To be honest, I was sitting here thinking this week, there's no way I could do one sermon on 39 verses of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of keeping you here for six hours today, which you know I want to do, (laughs) I want to focus on this. I want to focus on the shame of Christ, the suffering, and his saving work. The shame that he bore for you and for me, the suffering that he endured for you and for me, and the saving work. I want you to see Christ this morning. I want you to see Christ and what he did for you and did for his people. And what I want you to do is this. There's phrases I'm going to use today, and I'm going to ask you to help me out this morning. There's two words that I want you to say after each of the phrases I say for us. So when when I say that Jesus was bound, I want you to say... For us, okay? Or if you want to even be more personal, for me. Okay. Let's pray before we go to the passage. Father, I'm getting choked up already. And um, I haven't even read a word of this yet. This is the most powerful, poignant, passionate passage in all of Scripture. We have seen your son do amazing things, heal people, bring people to life, talk truth to people, be so gracious, washing the feet of his disciples, even washing Judas's feet, so gracious, so kind, so compassionate, so loving, so merciful. But I don't know if there's ever a sign of his compassion, his depth of love for you and for us than what he did at the cross. I praise you. Lord, today, I pray that we would see your son. I pray that we would magnify him. I pray that we would go, hallelujah, what a savior. And I pray that we can bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Okay, let's look here with me in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 1 through 5. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is going to be suffering at the hands of his foes, and the first group of foes are the religious leaders here. And it says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And so Pilate was amazed. I want you to see that first, Jesus was bound for us. Can you say it with me? Jesus was bound for us. Okay, so Jesus, the the King of kings and Lord of lords, this majestic one, is now bound in chains, which is just amazing. If you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, when this crowd of leaders, these um, these arresting officers come to Jesus, Jesus says, you know, they say, who is this one? And Jesus says, I am he. And if you remember in another gospel passage, as soon as he said, I am he, they were thrown back just with his very words. So the fact that these ropes cannot bind the second person of the Trinity, he is willingly allowing this to happen. But they thought that it was. It's early in the morning. It's probably about 6 a.m., And the whole council, the Sanhedrin, this group of people, they've gathered in consultation. And they've come in consultation. What kind of consultation have they done? What kind of accumulated wisdom have they come up with? What kind of mob mentality is happening? They are group thinking that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is evil. When you put all of it together, all of their accumulated wisdom, the most religious people, supposedly, of this area, the most intellectually religious people, are looking at the Son of God, and they are claiming that he is evil. Now, if you hear anything about trials, trials have legality. There's a legal purpose. We have in the United States a a set of standards that you will need to follow if this is going to be a legal trial, and they had some in the same time as well. The trial of Jesus was unlawful for many reasons. First, the judge was not impartial. It's supposed to be an impartial judge. The arrest was not lawful. They went in the middle of the night. The trials were supposed to occur during the day. They had done these trials at night. The verdict of guilt could not be rendered the same day as the punishment, as the trial. And throughout this, you're going to see that Pilate is going to proclaim Jesus as innocent. But then he's going to proclaim him to death. So this was a, an egregious act. This was an illegal trial. But they needed to make some semblance that this was okay. So what they did was they brought it before this guy Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor at the time. He served from A.D. 26 to A.D. 32. Um, he served in Judea. Uh, It's an imperial providence. Uh, At the time, it was under Tiberius Caesar. And he offered these administrators, these governors, to um, lay the land and to rule over the land. Now, what we find from Pilate in other writings in in the New Testament and then other extra biblical writings is that he was a pragmatic and opportunistic man. He was shrewd. He, he looked at these religious leaders that were coming to him, and he, he said, I don't believe what they're saying. He was pretty shrewd, but he was pragmatic as well. He wanted to keep power. He was, he was a ruthless man. He had done some terrible things, but he was also he 
was cruel, ruthless, but he was weak and vacillating, which is oftentimes what we see, that underneath the surface of these cruel and ruthless leaders is a level of insecurity, and that's exactly what we see with Pilate. He was pragmatic, he was ruthless, he was self-protecting, self-preserving. He saw the mob of people, now the the religious mob, and then there's going to be even a greater mob, and he wants to preserve himself, and he caves into the mob, which we will see in a moment. It was easier for him, eventually, to turn over this righteous man to the mob rather than to stand in the gap. But isn't that the way it is today? The mob says that this group is evil, and many people will just go with the mob rather than to stand in the gap and say this is wrong. Well, that's what they did. In his mind, it was easier to sacrifice this so-called prophet, Jesus, than it was to tell the truth. And the Sanhedrin now recognize they have no authority to put Jesus to death, so they need to get a Roman authority to put him to death. Now, Pilate's going to ask a series of questions in this passage, so I want you to see this. And here's the first question, verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Now, now the word uh, are you is in, a, in the emphatic, but it's also somewhat sarcastic. Are you the king of the Jews? But the charge is coming to light right now of what the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are saying about him. They are saying that he's a king. Now, now it, the claim is Messiah, but the Pharisees know and the Sanhedrin, the whole council knows that they can't bring the issue of Messiah to Pilate, he won't mean, that won't mean anything to him. The charge of blasphemy or messianic claims mean nothing to him. But now if he is claiming that this is a treasonous act, an insurrection, ah, now we have something. Now Jesus says, you have said so. And some people will say, well, see, Jesus isn't claiming to be a king here. But Jesus is not saying that I'm not a king. He says, I'm just not a king in the way that you're thinking. I'm not here to overthrow you. I'm here to overthrow sin, in essence. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not qualifying the fact that he's the true king. He is just saying, I'm not a king in the way that you're thinking I am, which is interesting. And Pilate's asking these questions, and it's confounding him. Now, somewhere here around verse 5 or after, Jesus apparently now now goes to Herod. They send him off to Herod for another trial. Mark chooses not to bring that up in here. That's okay. But if you read the other gospel accounts, you'll see that he went before Herod, and Herod then tries him as well. Herod Antipas was the religious leader of the Jews in that province at the time. He wanted an opportunity to see Jesus. If you remember, he's the same guy that had chopped off John the Baptist's head. He had heard that Jesus was around. He wasn't sure if Jesus was coming back. John the Baptist had come back in the form of Jesus. And he often wanted to see him perform his little magic acts. He wanted to see it. But then when he got a chance, Jesus said nothing before Herod. And Herod got frustrated. He sent him back to Pilate. We see in verse 3 that Jesus, now here's your next line, Jesus was falsely accused for... Say it again. Jesus was falsely accused for us beautiful and the chief priest verse 3 accused him of many things now it's mentioned in luke's gospel three specific things that he's being charged with he's being charged with first subverting the nation 
Second, opposing the payment of taxes. And third, claiming to be a king. So those were the three things. But they're, they're in the larger context of Mark, what we're going to find is that there are a ton of charges that these religious leaders are making against Jesus. We've seen it since the very beginning of working through Mark. They thought he was violating the law of Moses. They thought he was encouraging other people to violate the law of Moses. They said that he defiled the temple. He, he wouldn't submit to religious authority. There was claim after claim. They actually believed that he was breaking the Sabbath and that he was in league with Satan. You remember all of these claims that were coming up. One charge after another after another, wave upon wave of accusations are made. I was wondering, this is where it got personal for me, how do I handle it and how do you handle it when somebody accuses you of something that you know you haven't done wrong? When you're falsely accused, how do you respond? Now, when you know that you're wrong, some of us tend to blame and shift responsibility. When you know you're not wrong, you probably really entrench on defending yourself. But Jesus says nothing. That brings up Pilate's second question. Pilate's second question is found here in verse 6. Sorry, verse 4. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you. Pilate is just utterly amazed at him. Watch in verse 5. It says this, But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Why was he amazed? Because he had seen so many people stand before him. And he had probably put a number of people to death. And probably every single person that he saw he put to death, they claimed innocence. They defended themselves. Don't you? Don't I? They defended themselves. They, they got to a point of blaming or accusing others. They, they wouldn't take guilt or responsibility. They even got to a point at times of blaming God. Our foreparents did that in the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam, when he was accused, rather than taking responsibility, what did he do? He blamed Eve, and then he blamed God. That's what we do. We go horizontal, and then we go vertical. Anybody but me is responsible. But Jesus said nothing. Maybe when you're defensive, maybe you're abrupt, or you're arrogant, or maybe you're aggressive, or blaming other people. When you're, when you're defensive, maybe you're demeaning people, dominating people, dismissing this charge. I don't know how you react when you are accused of something and you defend yourself. Maybe you get harsh. Maybe you're inconsistent. Your lies start coming out. You're judgmental. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was quiet. He said absolutely nothing. See, when we defend ourselves, we protect ourselves. We promote ourselves. But Jesus was silent and Pilate was amazed. I want to give you this verse from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. It says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whosoever restrains his lips is prudent. Now Jesus could have talked a bazillion words and it would have never come out as sinful because he did not have a sinful nature. But when I talk a bazillion words, if I'm not very careful what comes out of my mouth, may be self-protecting and self-promoting and not God-glorifying and not true. Jesus was silent. Pilate was amazed. He had never seen anyone like Jesus. Your next line. Jesus, the innocent, was wrongly convicted. Mark chapter 6, verses four, uh, six through, uh, 15, verses 6 through 14. It says this, Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom he had asked. 
Now, the feast here could have been any festival, but primarily it's probably the Passover. And at the Passover, what they would have is something like a presidential pardon. What they would do is they would free somebody to gain political favor. So, so Pilate is sitting here, and he has been uh, interviewing Jesus. And as he's been interviewing Jesus, he sees no fault in him, no sin in him, no error. He sees that these are all lies, but he cannot figure out a way to let Jesus go. He's trying to convince the religious leaders they will not bend. So now what he does is he concocts this way, I will use the Passover release as an opportunity to let me let this person go. He seems to be trying to find a way to let Jesus go. Verse 7. Among the rebels in the prison, there one who had committed murder in the insurrection was a name Barabbas. I find it interesting, Barabbas. Now, if you maybe you know this, but the word Barabbas, the name Barabbas literally means son of Abba. Watch this. Son of what? The father. Interesting. So Jesus Christ, who is truly the son of the father, is taking the place of a man who is claimed to be and named to be son of the father. This, this man who's an insurrectionist, a murderer, a liar, he, he's been treasonous, is being replaced by the one who's innocent and perfect and sinless. He's been bound as a rebel. He's a murderer. The other gospels call him a robber. He's probably a robber, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. Jesus Christ, the son of the true father, is taking the place of this man Who's the son of the father? Jesus, the innocent, is being condemned. Barabbas, the insurrectionist and the guilty, is being declared free. Can you hear the gospel there? See, the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ took your place and stood in your place, took your guilt, took your pain, took your punishment, took God's wrath for your sin and mine. You should have stood in his place. He stood in your place. We stand in his place as righteous in his sight. Amazing. We see another group of foes coming out, the crowd, verse 8. And the crowd began and asked Pilate to do as he usually did. And Pilate has his third question of this section, verse 9. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to release Barabbas instead. So now Pilate asks these three questions, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 14. And what he's trying to do with these multiple questions is he's looking for an opportunity to release Jesus. He considers Jesus innocent, blameless. He should not go to the cross, but he can't figure out a way to do that and still save face. Because Pilate is so self-absorbed. He's weak. Now he thinks about this. That they, the religious leaders, are probably seeing Jesus. And they're upset with him out of envy. So he says, I'm going to play off of that envy. And he's going to go to the crowd and he's going to say, Would you like me to release for you your Messiah? And he's figuring that the crowd is going to turn on the religious leaders. But the religious leaders do what? The religious leaders stir up things in the crowd. And then Pilate asks his fourth question in verse 12. He says, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
If you're not opposed to circling a, a verse or underlining a verse, it would be this verse right here, because this is the pivotal verse. Verse 12, because this is the question that Pilate is asking of the people, then what shall I do with Jesus, in essence? It's the question that you have to answer yourself. What are you going to do with Jesus? See, there is no neutrality here. People believe that you can stay on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You cannot. You will either accept him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, or you will deny him. You will either stand before him and be a sheep on his side, and he says, welcome into my glory, or you will be one that he will say, away from me for all of eternity. And it comes down to the decision that you make about that question, what shall you do with the man they call Jesus? So Pilate, in verse 13, says, or in verse 13, we see that they cried out again, and then Pilate asked his fifth question, last question of the section. Why? What evil has he done? I love this. Every single person that we've seen in the book of Mark, except for these religious leaders who hate him, have professed the innocence of Christ. Even the demons call him the Holy One. And Pilate here is saying he is innocent. Herod said he was innocent. Everybody that saw him saw that he was innocent. We're going to see a robber that is going to be crucified with him sees him as innocent. We're going to see a centurion that was there when he died sees him as innocent because he is. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's the Holy One of God. Be amazed. But they shouted all the more, crucify him, because the mob says, crucify him. Next line for you. Jesus was scourged and condemned to death for us. Verse 15 through 16, Jesus was scourged and condemned for us. It says, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy, look at this weak, wobbly man pleaser, satisfy the crowd. He released Barabbas. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he's trying to satisfy the crowd. And he scourged Jesus, and he delivered him to be crucified. Now, there was a popular movie that came out about 10 or 15 years ago that showed the horrendous death that Jesus probably experienced. And as you watched this movie, you saw, unlike any of the other movies that you saw probably of Jesus' death where there's a little drop of blood, you see him beaten and maliciously treated. And, and, and for many people that walked out of the movie theater and watched that movie, they were in shock. It's like, that is what happened to Jesus. And what they saw was the physical torment that Jesus endured. And hour after hour, they showed that. What was amazing to me is this. When you read the gospel accounts, the gospels spend very little time talking about what Jesus endured physically. They didn't talk a lot about the scourging. I could tell you that's a cat of nine tails and there's metal and bone at the end. It would rip off most of the skin off his back and expose muscles and do all of those things. But the gospel writers didn't spend any time with that. It's just one word. They scourged him. Now, many people had experienced that scourging. Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, said that he had experienced it four or five times. So Jesus, what he experienced, other people had experienced. It wasn't the physical thing, as as terrible as it was. It wasn't the physical thing. 
Many people had been crucified. There were two people crucified with Jesus. Many people had been crucified. They didn't spend a lot of time focusing on the physical issues. What they did was they wanted you to understand what he was doing in that crucifixion. It wasn't the physical pain as much as it was he was bearing hell for you and for me. That's the issue. Nobody wants to die. Jesus didn't want to die physically. Jesus didn't want to have to die physically and experience the pain. But Jesus, the Holy One, was going to take sin upon himself. That's... Is there another way? Father, take this cup from me. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him aside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion. Here's your next line. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. Mark 15, verses 17 through 21. They clothed him with purple cloak and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him. They had given him a reed, uh, this reed. And in another gospel account, they had given him this reed, like almost a scepter. And and Jesus probably didn't want to play along with them, so he wasn't going to grab it. So once he let that thing go, then they started to strike him about the head. This is your king of kings and lord of lords who is being beaten and spit upon. And his beard is being pulled out. He is being rejected and shamed for you. Every time you think about sinning, I want you to think about that is what Christ endured for you. They strike him on the head. They mock him, verse 20. They stripped him and they put on a purple cloak, you know, royalty. And they clothed him in his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Now Jesus has been so savagely beaten that he can't even carry his own cross, a form of shame. See, One of the things would be that I will carry my cross like a man, but Jesus, so beaten, so shamed, he can't even carry his own cross. And to carry a cross, when you were walking through a town carrying a cross, it would have been a form of shame as well. So it was shame in the fact that Jesus couldn't carry the cross, but it was shame in the fact that you would have had to carry the cross. So what they do is they grab some guy, Simon, and says, you're going to carry the cross. I don't want to carry the cross. Everybody's going to think I'm the one that's condemned. Carry the cross. The shame that is being poured out upon Jesus. I've done nothing wrong. The shame of being associated with Jesus. Simon, maybe you as a believer are being under a form of shame today because you are associated with Jesus. How open are you about that? Maybe you're quiet because you're afraid of being associated with him. You're afraid of being associated with a cross-carrying Christ. Verse 22, and they brought him to a place called Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. Here's your next line. Jesus was conscious and clear-headed when he suffered. Jesus was conscious and clear-headed when he suffered for us. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he didn't take it. It was a narcotic. He was, he was full in fact in his faculties. No anesthesia, no narcotics, no mind-altering drugs. I am clear-minded, full heart. I am going to this cross for you. Next line, Jesus came under a curse for us. 
Mark 15, verses 24 to 32, and they crucified him. One word, crucified him. What they would do is they would lay you down on the ground and the, the cross beam that you would have had to carry, and there's a long beam that is there, and they would nail that long beam together, and they would put your hand, and they probably would get you in the joint just below the wrist, um, not in the palm because it would pull apart. And so they would nail you with a railroad spike in these two wrists. And then they would cross over your feet, and there's a little peg at the bottom, and they would lean your feet on them, and they would nail you through there. Then what they would do is they would lift up that cross beam and that cross and run it into a ground, into a hole in the ground. And when they did that, it probably dislocated most of your joints. And then... Just to breathe, you needed to be able to pull up. You need to push up off the nails in your feet, and you need to pull up off the dislocated things in your arms just to breathe. Now, once again, don't misunderstand. Every person that was crucified did the same thing. Now, usually, when somebody is crucified, probably you're screaming and yelling. When somebody cuts you off on the road, how many many four-letter words come out of your mouth, right? When somebody steps on your toe, blank, 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 right? Jesus is having railroad spikes put into his hands, and the very first words that come out of his mouth is what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, dangerous criminals and runaway slaves were crucified. It was the cruelest, most heinous, and hideous form of punishment. And they crucified him. It's the third hour, 9 a.m. Verse 26 in the description, the charge above him was this, the king of the Jews. And then there were robbers on his left and right, verse 27, one robber and another. And you'll see in the other gospel messages, what we'll find is that these robbers are attacking him. They're going along with the crowd and they're just deriding him. Verse 28, if you have the English Standard Version, is not there. Watch it. It's not there. It's not in the best manuscript, so they just omit it. But the, um, the phrase is, is not extremely significant. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you, destroy, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it, but in three days save yourself and come down from the cross And so the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And there he was crucified. So we see that Jesus was um, abandoned by his friends. We see that Jesus was attacked by his foes. We see that Jesus is now going to suffer the anger and wrath of his father. Verse 33 is amazing here. It says that Jesus entered the darkness for us. I want you to know that it was the six hours. It's 12 o'clock, midday. The sun should be shining bright, but all of a sudden it's dark as night. The darkest night. This great darkness has fallen upon this whole land at the ninth hour, until the ninth hour. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it is pitch black dark. It's funny, at the beginning of Jesus' life, 
if you remember, when he was born in a manger, it was in the middle of the night, and the sky is bright, and the stars and the angels are lighting up this dark night, and it's like day during the night. But at his crucifixion, in the day, it is like darkness. Jesus is being forsaken by the Father for us. Verse 34 and 36, it says this, on the ninth hour, once again, 12, um, ninth hour is at about 3 o'clock, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, even at the end, when Jesus is suffering the wrath of God for your sins, if you trust in him, even at the end, Jesus is crying out, my God. He has not rejected his father. He has not turned away from his father. How quickly do you and I do the same thing? We don't. We protect ourselves. We promote ourselves. But Jesus is elevating Christ, elevating his father. The bystanders misunderstood. They thought it was Elijah that he's calling out for. So they bring some sour wine to give it to him to drink. Wait to see if Elijah will do this. I want you to think about this. For hours on that cross, it was not just a physical pain or the taunts from others. It wasn't just the taunts from the people that were around him. It was wave after wave of the anger of God that he would have poured upon you in hell for all of eternity was poured upon the Son for you. Wave after wave after wave was poured upon him for you. It would have taken us eternity in hell to pay for what Christ paid for in hours on the cross. One more phrase. Jesus died. Verses 37 to 39. Jesus uttered a loud cry. He breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then when the centurion who stood there facing him saw that the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Hallelujah. What a savior. So what did Jesus accomplish at the cross? Jesus was our great high priest. The Bible talks about Jesus as being a prophet, telling the truth, king, majesty, royalty, but it speaks of him as being a priest. See, the priest would year after year have to give a sacrifice, and on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the holiest of holy and take a sacrifice in there to pay for the sins of humanity. One time, once a year, animals were sacrificed on that, on that tomb in that area for your sins and for mine. But sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice could not ultimately remove sin. Jesus performed an atonement. You were separated from God because of your sin and he's brought you together in his own blood. No longer is it a goat or a pigeon or a lamb that is going to die for your sins. It is going to be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is willing to die for you. 
What you were estranged has now been brought together. That's what atonement means. Atoning is that all of those sacrifices could not do anything that Christ was going to ultimately do. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to be, uh, had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. Jesus was perfect, spotless, without blemish for you and for me. I want you to think of two theological words. I just want to do these two, uh, two aspects of theology. Don't lose me here. Stay with me. There is, there is two aspects of Jesus' work for you. Active obedience and passive obedience. Okay? Active obedience is this. That from the very womb that Jesus lived a perfect and righteous life. Everything that he ever did was righteous. He did everything in accordance with the law. Why did he get born? Why was he born as a little baby? He was born as a little baby because as you were in your mom's womb, you were a sinner. But when he was in his mom's womb, he was righteous. As a toddler, you were a sinner, but... As a toddler, Christ was righteous. As a young child, you were a sinner, Christ was righteous. As a teenager, you're a sinner, but Christ is righteous. As an adult, you're a sinner, but Christ was righteous. Every stage of life that you lived, he actively lived righteous for you. Act of obedience. But there's a second part of what God does for us. It's not just act of obedience, which he accredits to you if you trust in him. There's a second part called passive obedience. Passive obedience is where, where God, Christ, took upon himself in a passive way. Not that he was not active in his crucifixion, but he stood back and allowed for God to pour his wrath upon you in a passive way. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down and I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to give it up. In Jesus' passivity, what he did was he took suffering upon himself for you. What Jesus did for you is this. Another theological word is called expiation. He removed your sin. Second theological word, propitiation. He appeased the wrath of God for your sin if you trust in him. Reconciliation is another theological word. What was separated has been brought together. One more theological word, redemption. To buy back a slave. He bought you not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood. Expiation, he's removed your sin. Propitiation, there is no longer condemnation for you. Reconciliation, you've been brought near to God. Redemption, you've been purchased with the very blood of God. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this, For even if the Son of Man came to not be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want you to think of this, that Jesus Christ died he became your sin bearer he became your substitute he became the sacrifice he became your savior if you would trust in him last thing before I close 
I want you to hear a triumphant cry of finality. Look here at verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. The centurion had seen many people die, but had never seen anybody die like this. (laughs) Jesus cried out, it is finished. I don't know, I played a lot of sports, right? And as I got to an end of a winning game, I can remember I had a game where I hit a game-winning home run. And it was an inside-the-park home run. And one of my friends who's, I think, here, um, was at first base, my first base coach, and he says, if you score, we win. And I ran like the Dickens to first, second, third, and I came around, and I slid into home, and I see the ump go safe, and the, oh, <laughs> we won. It's a stupid game. Divine, substitute, divine satisfaction has come through divine substitution. Jesus was able to say, yes, it's done. I love this. John Stott says this. Jesus' cry says something about us. It says something about God, and it says something about Jesus. It says something about us, how vile our sin is, how evil our sin is. But it says something about God. In spite of that, God loves you so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. How vile our sin is, how loving God is. But it says something not only about us. It says something about God. It says something about Jesus. It says this, that his gift is free to anyone that will accept it today. Jesus had fulfilled his mission. He completed his work. He fulfilled the Father's plan. He had redeemed his people. A triumphant cry of finality. Second, before we close, a torn curtain of fellowship. This curtain, which was supposedly about 60 feet high and 19 feet long, I mean, it's huge, curtain, was torn from the top to the bottom. And this was a curtain that separated the holiest place, the holy of holies, that no one could go into except one man every year, and he had to be cleansed to go in, and he would go in there for you. And it's torn from top to bottom. What separated you from God has now been torn. It's been rent. The holy place is open. You have access to the Father. If I called the president today, I could not get access to him. You have access to the Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the majestic one, as this curtain has been torn from top to bottom. A triumphant cry, a torn curtain, and then finally, a true confession. When the centurion standing by him saw all of this, and he breathed his last, he said, truly this was a righteous man. I was just trying to think of what is it that this man had seen. Maybe he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus says, I am he, he was drawn back. Maybe he had seen Malchus's ear severed by Peter and then Jesus healing it. Maybe he had heard and seen Jesus not putting up any defense. Maybe he had heard and seen Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. 
Maybe he had heard and seen this robber cursing him for hours. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe he heard in his final breath, he gave up his spirit. I've never seen anybody die like that. What he saw and he heard was some of what Pilate had saw and heard. One trusted, the other one did not. So that's what I close with today. Many of you have heard of Christ. I guess the question is, what you've seen and what you've heard, are you Pilate rejecting, denying, turning away? Or are you the centurion who glorified God and said, this is a righteous man, this is the son of God. I bend my knee to him. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ, brothers and sisters, my friends. You will either bend your knee to him today, but if you die without him, you will stand before him and you will have to give an account and you will be sent to an eternity away from him. And today, you have an opportunity to trust him, to believe upon him, to turn to him today. Do not let this day go by. I'll end with this hymn. I love this hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die, it is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior, stand with me. Last line. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Will you say it with me? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, there's a line in that hymn that says, In my place condemned he stood. And maybe people didn't catch it this morning, but the reason why I was asking them to say that Jesus did this for us or for me is that I want them to be able to see that it was in their place condemned Christ stood if they trust in him today. I pray that that would not go past them. I pray that for those that have seen and for those that have heard, I pray that they would see and hear like the centurion, be humbled. I pray that you would open eyes open hearts, open ears, turn people to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Just think, oh, great God. Oh, great God of highest heaven. Occupy my lowly heart, own it all, and 
reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit Lord, this morning we thank you for going to the cross for us so we can say hallelujah, what a savior. And we know it's not just a physical death, but the, uh, the forsakenness you got from your father who you were with before time began for him to abandon you so that we could go free is an unbelievable thing almost can't believe it. So God, thank you. And that is an understatement. Thank you for saving us, for dying for us, for redeeming us, and bringing us into your family as your children. We thank you this morning that we can sing together, hear your word together. Now be with us as we go from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.